All right. Thank you, David, for leading us in that time of worship. Now, friends, it's time for us to get into God's word and see what the Lord has to say to the church today. Uh, we're continuing our study. St- our we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 14. And we'll be looking at verses 15 through 31 today. Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. It's been a very interesting study through the book of Exodus. It seems like every week there are things in the story, in the narrative, that the people of God, that Israel, that Moses face as they're going through the challenge of getting out of Egypt and getting to the promised land. Uh, of course, I think you and I were, were in the midst of a, a difficult situation that, that seems to be changing all the time. It looks like maybe it's getting better and then it gets worse and then this happens and that happens and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think it's so important for us as the people of God to continue to stay on the path that God has us in in this moment. And I know sometimes that feels like an impossible Path. We literally feel like God's just got us going on this path that's going to be a dead end somewhere. I, I don't see how just keep going is, is going to be an answer. But what I love about what we're going to read today is that God makes a way through the sea. It literally looks like an impossible path. You cannot get through. This can't be God's way. And yet God is the God of the impossible. He makes the sea open up and God's people pass through. And so I believe there's some things that the Lord wants to teach you and I today through this passage, if we have the ears to hear. So let's go ahead and read the text together. We'll pray and get into the study. So Exodus 14, 15 through 31. This is God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will again honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the water waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when, this, when, when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned <clears throat> and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. <clears throat> but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray that you would speak a word to each and every one of us this morning. Lord, I believe your word is a living word. It is living and active and powerful. It is able to pierce into the deepest parts of who we are as human beings. You are able to reveal to us true knowledge of ourselves. Lord, I think many times we take it for granted that that we understand ourselves, but you know us better than we do. If there is any crooked way in us, Lord, if there is any wrong desires, if there's any bad motivations, if there's wrong ideas about things, if there's behaviors that you want us to change, Lord, you know what those are. And I believe you want to speak those to your people. Lord, maybe it's a matter of encouragement this morning. Maybe some of us, we, we have the right attitude on this thing. Or maybe we have the right idea. Or maybe we're doing the right thing, but we're feeling pressure from all around to cease to do and to believe and to be compelled by these things that are good and right and true. And so if, if that's us this morning, Lord, I pray that you would encourage and affirm your people in the good things you are doing in their lives. Lord, I pray that we would be able to be salt and light to the world, Lord, even those who are may, may be our enemies by the things they choose to, to do, Lord. We pray that we would be like Christ and even love and pray for our enemies, that we would be salt and light to them, that we would pray for them, that they too might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I believe this is a critical moment in our lives and in history, and I believe you have a role for your people. I pray you would reveal that to us and give us power to live it out by the Holy Spirit. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm calling this morning's message, Away Through the Sea. Away Through the Sea. Again, last time we talked about how uh, Israel... When they had left Egypt, the text says they were bold. They were emboldened. They're like, yes, finally, we're actually going. We've been talking about it for a while. We, we heard we were going to go. And then things, if you remember, they got worse at first. The first time Moses went in to help us, <laughs> it got worse, right? Uh, that's something that's good to remember. Uh, just because people do things that make things worse doesn't always mean that they intended to, to do us harm. Uh, sometimes, like Moses, people can genuinely try to help us, but it can also sometimes result in negative consequences. That's what happened with Moses. He goes in 
And even he is surprised at the consequences. He thought he was going in and it was just going to happen and it actually gets worse. Pharaoh doubles the labor on all the Israelites and the Israelites are, what have you done to us, you cruel, horrible man? And he's just like, I was trying to help. So remember, sometimes when bad things happen, it's not just because people are intending to do evil. It can even be from good intentions. We saw that God continued to do plague after plague after plague. And again, there's question about how long all of it took. Um, but it certainly took some time for all of the plagues to take place. And Israel is all the time, they're waiting, they're waiting. Like, okay, it looks like we could be out of here. And they're like, nope, nope, it's not happening. Oh, it looks like we could be, nope, nope. So they're doing this over and over and over. Finally, it happens. The 10th plague comes, and for the first time, Pharaoh lets them go. He lets them all go. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, you can go, but not your wives. You can go, but not the kids. You and your wives and kids can go, but not your livestock. He's like, you guys, get out of here. Just go. So Israel is emboldened, and the text says that. They were bold. They went out boldly. But then this unforeseen circumstance takes place. Just when they thought they were home free, out comes charging Pharaoh's chariots. We talked about how chariots were sort of the ancient equivalent of a tank. Um, so these chariots, and of course these are trained military warriors. These are, you know, Israel wasn't training for war the whole time they were in Egypt. They were building things. They were not training for war. And they had their, their children and their livestock and, and all that kind of stuff with them. So they, they were not in fighting shape. And here comes Pharaoh's trained elite army in the ancient equivalent of a tank charging them. And immediately we see God's people go from boldness to fear. From boldness to fear. And I think that's so true to life. I believe that you and I can have moments of just boldness. And we, and we know it, not even just human boldness, that we can even sense and experience and perhaps others can look in our lives and they can go, wow, how are you so bold right now? How can you be bold when you know the, the government is doing this and that and the other and the culture and society is doing this, that and the other and, and we don't know if this is going to happen or if that's not going to happen or, or all this stuff. How in the world can you be so bold? We can genuinely experience this spiritual boldness that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and yet we too are susceptible from moving from boldness to fear. And I think you and I have to be able to see that in ourselves, because the problem is not so much even the fear itself. It's, I think it is denying that we are in a place of fear. Um, I know some of you, maybe that's not as much of an issue, um, but for some of us, and, and you know, maybe it's like you want to be tough, you want to be strong, and you know, and and you don't want to say you're afraid, but deep down, that's exactly what it is. It's it's fear. Uh, fear begins to uh, change our minds. It begins to alter our perception. We don't see things the way we would normally see them if we were not afraid. And again, that's not entirely wrong. We talked about how God does give us, in a sense, a built-in human mechanism of fear, which is, which is not a bad thing. What the Bible is against is what it calls a spirit of fear, a mentality of fear, an attitude of fear that is abiding and 
subversive and it, and it sort of gets down underneath all the other things we hold dear and it begins to corrupt all of them. That's what the Bible is against. So again, just being alerted or cautious or uh, of something, that, that's not wrong, so don't feel bad about that. But what you and I need to make sure we don't do is give into this spirit of fear. Um, I, I know you and I, we saw a great example of this earlier on in this pandemic. Um, I don't think it's as much of an issue now, but do you all remember when you couldn't get toilet paper? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you would go in and literally people would be moving out of the store with their shopping cart with toilet paper piled like 15 feet in the air? You know, and you're like, what are you doing? But it was, I remember watching when this was all really fresh and new, just fear driving people's behavior. And you're kind of like, that doesn't make sense. You're, you're literally, you know, I don't, it's not the thing itself. It's like, it's your behavior that's causing the problem, right? You're running out of toilet paper because people are buying thousands of rolls at a time. Of course, you're going to run out if you do that. So you just see how fear can really become pervasive. And then it becomes a herd mentality. And we as Christians have to be careful. We don't get swept away with this current of fear. I am concerned. I've been seeing a number of brothers and sisters in Christ, not necessarily uh, church members, but one of the great things about social media is I get to stay in touch with Christians from all over the world, friends I used to work with in, in ministry many years ago at different churches or people I knew in, in seminary or college or, or whatever it was and uh, friends on the mission field. So I get to get, it's part of kind of my news digest. I'll go through my news feed the way that I will um, my various news sources each day because I want to know what's going on. And I'm seeing many Christians getting swept away with fear. And again, as I said, I'm not against being alert and, and, and taking things very seriously, but we don't want to just give in to fear. Uh, fear is not God's way for you and I. We want to be bold. We want to be courageous. We want to be strong. And I believe that is what God wants to do through Israel. So this fear took over Israel. And we saw that they cried out to the Lord, but we talked about how last week, not every cry to the Lord is sincere. Just because somebody prays or cries out to the Lord doesn't mean it proceeds from faith. And we know this in this instance because the very next line after Israel cried out to the Lord was they complained against Moses immediately. So if it, if it were a faith, they would have trusted God. They would have trusted God's plan. Moses is our leader. Um, and hey, we're, we, you put him there, Lord, so we're going we're gonna to trust. But their immediate move after crying out to the Lord is to complain against Moses. Were there not enough graves in Egypt, Moses, that, that you had to bring us out to the desert to die? Obviously, uh, being extremely sarcastic, given Egypt had tons of free land and they were obsessed. Uh, with burial rights. So so very it was a, a real dig uh, at Moses and his leadership. But that's what fear does. And I've noticed that too. Sometimes we fear just needs needs somebody to hit. <laughs> fear just needs to lash out at somebody, even if, even if it doesn't make sense. And so I think you and I need to be very careful when this this fear and this anxiety, and as I've shared, I'm not immune to it. I, I've definitely had my moments of fear, and I'd say an underlying continuing kind of state of anxiety, like I feel like it. And sometimes I don't notice. Other times I'm like, 
oh, you know, I'm, it's like wearing me down. I can just, you know, all of a sudden feel it. So I know it's there, but what you and I have to be careful of is we, is we don't just take it out on somebody, you know, that we use somebody as a punching bag. And the issue is not even so much them, it's just, we're just frustrated. And maybe what it really is, like with Israel, we're angry at God. We're actually angry at God, but maybe we don't want to say that. So we just take it out on everybody else that we can see. I can't see God, so I'm going to take it out on you instead. You and I need to be very careful. We don't allow that fear to come in and do this. So that's the situation. Moses responded. That was one of his shining moments. Moses uh, didn't freak out. He said famously, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. So we see the boldness of God moving in this leader, Moses, that he wasn't responding to the fears of the people. He cared about them, but he didn't take on their fears. And leaders need to be careful that they don't take on the fears of the people they are leading. They need to listen to them. They need to care about them, but they can't give into it. And I know sometimes people say that, like, like, Pastor, you need to be as scared as I am about this. But friends, that's exactly what you need me not to do. You don't want me, like, fully giving in to fear. I wouldn't be able to lead anybody, anybody, if I gave in to fear. So we have to follow the Lord and we have to remain bold and courageous in our outlook, while at the same time not turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to the fears that people have. We need to care about those fears. So that was Moses. Now in this section, we see God responding to Moses. And we're going to see the final act, as it were, of the Exodus. So let's take a look at what's going on here. So in verse 15, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me, tell the children of Israel to move forward? This is kind of interesting. The you there, when it says, why do you, is, is a second person singular. So in other words, he's God is not saying, why did Israel cry out? God is saying to Moses, why did you, you, singular, why did you cry out? I think that's interesting because there's no record of Moses crying out. What we have a record of is Israel crying out. So you would have expected that God would have used a third-person plural. Why did they cry out, Moses? You tell me. Or maybe he, he lumps them all together and he says a you plural. Why did you all cry out to me? No, you singular. Why would God do that? Well, some say it's possible. Maybe Moses cried out too, but the Bible doesn't say. Okay, well, maybe, but the Bible doesn't say. So that's a problem with that position. Another thing is, and this is supported elsewhere, is this idea of a representative, a corporate representative that oftentimes in the Bible, one figure will stand in for the group. We saw this famously in the story of David and Goliath. If you remember, uh, the two armies were, were kind of facing off, but they're kind of at a standstill. And what they would what they would do, or what the Philistines did, is would send out one representative, one great Philistine that represents all that the Philistines are and hope to be. This figure, Goliath, and Israel had no representative because they were scared. No, no one wanted to stand up. And of course, we know the story. God uses David. David represents the people of Israel. And the whole thing was, whichever representative wins, that's, that's who's going to win. This idea of a corporate 
representative. The priest in the temple system was a corporate representative. He would offer up the sacrifices, not just for himself, but for all the people. And of course, chiefly, all of this helps us understand why Jesus did what he did and what it means. Jesus stood in for us as our corporate representative. That is why Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam, because the first Adam was the first corporate representative of all humanity. Jesus now by faith becomes the corporate representative for all those who trust in him. So what we see here is God holding Moses as the corporate representative of Israel. That that is the burden and the privilege that a leader of God gets to carry. Even when it is not the leader who is crying out or the leader who is doing this, that, or the other, the leader takes on the circumstances, the plight, the predicament of the people they're leading, and God holds them accountable for that. That is a weighty matter. That is why the Bible says, do not lay hands on hastily. And what that means is don't ordain somebody to the ministry hastily. It is a tremendous responsibility. And though in one sense, no one's ever fully ready for it, we do want to make sure that they are trained and equipped and understand what it is God is calling them to account for. So we see God holding Moses as the corporate representative. Notice that verse 15 says this, tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now that might sound like a contradiction to what Moses just said last week. If you remember, Moses said, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, which is it, God? Is it be still or is it go forward? You can look at it two ways. Maybe it's one moment, it's be still and the next moment it's go forward. Another way to look at it, and I think this is biblically valid, and that is that what is being called for with Moses, when Moses says, be still, he's not literally saying freeze, you know, like freeze tag, freeze, don't move. Simon says, you know, um, it's be still in your heart. It's the idea that um, the, the heart gets moving and it gets beating faster, right? When, when fear happens, when the fight or flight mechanism begins happening in your body, what happens to your heart? It begins moving, right? It begins acting and or overreacting to the situation. So it's be still in your heart internally. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. But that does not mean you won't be obedient, that we will not be active in obedience. So being still in our hearts does not negate being active in obedience. I think that's important. Yes, there's times where, yeah, it's just kind of a waiting period in life. That definitely happens. Um, but I don't think it's this idea of the people of God just do nothing. Um, that That's not the case. So God tells them to begin moving forward. And that's no small thing. If you remember, the scripture said that about 600,000 Israelite men journeyed out of Egypt. So if you do the estimates, roughly, that comes to around 2 million people leaving Egypt. Now, they've pitched camp, 
right? So they've each, they've all, this two million people have set up their camp. Um, their, their oxen might be in pens or tied up and their things are out. So for all those people to, to pick up camp, pack up everything, get ready to go, that's going to take hours. That, that, is, that is a lot of activity. They're being busy. Um, it's the kind of activity where it does still require you to trust the Lord. Because remember, as they're doing all this activity, there's still no sense at all as to how in the world that is going to save them. What is me mowing my lawn today and paying and and you know just paying this bill and and like doing the same thing? Like how is that going to fix all of the problems around me? Sometimes that's what you don't know. You be still and trust the Lord with regard to all the things you can't do anything about. And there are plenty of those. But you stay active in obedience to the little things. The little things each and every day that God has called you to do. There may be things you're unable to do. Be still and trust the salvation of the Lord in those areas. But what are you able to do? Be sure that you're active in obedience and what you are able to do. Being still does not negate active obedience. Verse 16 It says, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now, I I thought this was kind of an interesting little point. What is it Moses lifts up? He lifts up a staff. Well, what kind of staff is it? And what difference does that make? Well, apparently in the ancient world, that made a big difference. What kind of? staff are you holding? Is it a shavet or is it a mate? Is it a shavet or a mate? Well, what's the difference? So a shavet is a scepter indicating kingship or deity. So a shavet, a certain kind, is an indicative of a king or a god. That's not what Moses is holding up. Moses is holding up a mate. A mate is a lowly shepherd's staff. It is the sign of a lesser authority. And I thought this was kind of an interesting choice of God for Moses. And though I'm certainly drawing from the Bible at large, I would say this is nevertheless true. And that is the idea that the Bible never puts ultimate authority into the hands of any single human person. Not ever. There is no such thing as anyone in the world to whom you and I as Christians owe absolute, unqualified obedience. Now, I will be one of those people that will point out that God tells us to submit to all kinds of different relationships and situations. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not embarrassed about that. If God says it, I believe it's good. I believe God's heart. I trust God behind it. I I understand why many people don't like it. They're worried about those things being abused. And they're probably right. It gets abused by a lot of people. But again, I don't believe that's God's heart. I think the love of God transforms how Christians view and use power. And so power, Jesus taught his disciples, was used to serve. It was used to love people. It was used to be a blessing to them. It was never used 
to domineer or crush them or anything else. So I think this is a very, very important point. And I won't go too deep because I, I realize it certainly extends well beyond this point. But I thought, nevertheless, that is interesting. Moses does not lift up a shevet, a scepter, indicating kingship or deity, but rather a matet, that of a, a lowly shepherd, a shepherd leader. Because no human being has all the authority. The only person who has all the authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one to whom you and I at all times and always owe all obedience. It is only Jesus. Therefore, as we are submitting to Christ, we therefore submit to the various situations and relationships that the Bible teaches us, in particular the New Testament, because we are under the New Covenant, not the Mosaic Covenant. So when it comes to government, for example, and, and you can imagine all the applications this, this could mean, it means we, we, so, we submit to the government, not just because of the government or, or what they said or, or even philosophical, political theory. Rather, it is the Bible. The Bible tells me to do it. Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. We submit to the governing authorities because we believe God is sovereign over all the authorities. Now, some people might push back and say, well, no, but that's only if it's a good government. Well, here's the irony. That was written at a time when the Roman government was sovereign over Israel and over Paul's upbringing. It was Rome. And we know Caesar and, and Pilate. And, I mean, it wasn't just Caesar. It was, I'd say, the Roman government in general, by our standards today, is pretty corrupt. Furthermore, the Bible is not naive about the very story I'm telling you today. The Bible never forgot. Israel never forgot. Paul never forgot that Israel was once in Egypt, that they know power can go from good to evil. They know it. They had a good thing going in Egypt. They were live. I mean, honestly, they were probably living very good. Joseph was second in command, brought his family down. They got the best real estate there was. And then political, and again, this is part of the problem with a monarchy, is uh, un unlike you, you know the United States, which certainly has its problems, but obviously the distribution and delegation of authority into the three different branches of government and, and the checks and balances certainly is, is, a, is better, I think, than a monarchy where you can go from really good, you could technically go really good really fast in a monarchy. Unfortunately, the problem is you can go really bad, really fast under that. So keep in mind, when we read those passages about obeying the government and submitting to the governing authorities, the Bible is not naive. I know some Christians feel that way. Like, it can't mean that. Uh, I mean, good grief. Look at this, this, that, and the other. Friends, trust me, the Bible is far less naive than we are, to be perfectly honest with you. They know what government can do. They know how bad it can get. And yet it still says to trust in God because it's not trusting in the government. It's actually trusting in God. I trust in the sovereignty of God. Now I say all that so I can say something on the other side of this coin. And that is that my very point here, any earthly leader, whether that's, you know, a a president, a senator, a governor, whatever it is, they do not hold a shevet. They do not hold ultimate authority. They, at best, hold a mate. They are a lower delegated authority, and we do not owe them unqualified obedience. So we're obeying the Lord. We're submitting to this as much as we can. But obviously, if there ever comes a point where we are told 
that we must disobey God, that God is no longer the authority we can submit to, but it, it goes against God's word. We can reconcile with, hey, I've been trying to obey God in all the things it says to obey and submit to the government. I, I've been trying to do that. I can say with a good conscience, it's not just me uh, being you know, obnoxious and rebellious and breaking every law I can fo possibly find, which I, I can understand as a, as a sinner. I totally can understand that. I just know that the Bible says it's wrong. So when I'm submitting to all the things that I can, when it finally comes, and it could. When it finally comes to that area, that place, that time, when I can no longer do so and obey the Lord, then I can have a clear conscience that I am doing the right thing. But if I'm just a lawbreaker all day long regardless, even if it's, you know, it's it's not a bad law, I just don't like it. I'm like, eh, I don't like it. That's dumb. You know, so I, I just break it. Then I'm going to have an unclear conscience. And, and actually, that means your level of conviction is not going to be as deep as it needs to be to be able to stand for the Lord when that time really comes, when it actually means your life, when it actually means your livelihood. We're going to need the deepest of convictions, and it's hard to have a deep conviction with a guilty conscience. So friends, I, I say this for us. We have to be witnesses. We have to obey as much as we can. But if it comes to a place where, again, we have to disobey God in order, then we do have a, a long history in the Bible of what some might call civil disobedience. So there is a place for that. Again, we can talk about this more uh, at length an another time. I realize there's much more scripture to explore and, and nuance and, of course, analysis of, of possible applications and things. And, and, and I get that. But I just want to say that's, that's the thing we have to remember about earthly power. We submit to it, but only Jesus holds the scepter. Only Jesus hold, holds the shavat. He alone are you and I to submit to in an unqualified, it is just completely obedience to Jesus in everything. Verse 17 and 18. And indeed I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So throughout the Exodus narrative, we were only told about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. It was Pharaoh. It was mainly aimed at Pharaoh, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and, and kind of this back and forth uh, sort of thing going on. But here we actually have God says he's going to harden the Egyptians' heart. So it's not just Pharaoh now. It is the Egyptians. And this is kind of an interesting thing, because if you think, think about it from Israel's perspective, why would God do that? Again, forget that he's going to park the Red Sea in a moment, but just he's going to embolden. He's going to embolden because the, the Egyptians are now bold. They are emboldened. They feel they've got Israel trapped. They're sitting ducks, backs up against the sea, and they are charging in at them with everything they have. And God put it in their hearts to just keep going and going and going. Now, normally, chariots were not used in all circumstances. This is well known. It was utter foolishness to use chariots in marshy land, in any kind of uh, land where, where it's damp, because then the wheels just sink into the ground, and then it causes all kinds of problems. So what we actually see is, is God so emboldens the Egyptian army 
that they even abandon some of the military tactics they would normally observe. They threw common sense out the window. And that's almost strange to think. Why, you know, God doing that, God so emboldening, hardening their hearts that they sort of throw common sense out the window. Now, again, we know it's because ultimately God is going to enact justice on them. It's no mistake that the final act of the Exodus is the drowning of the Egyptians. The drowning of the Egyptians. Why? Because this whole thing started with Pharaoh drowning Israelite sons. God never forgot. Sometimes we feel like God forgets. When justice is delayed, we feel like God forgets. But God never forgot. The final move of the Exodus is the drowning of the Egyptian army, which harkens back to the original drowning of the Israelite sons. But God puts it in them. And I think sometimes for God's people, God can do this kind of thing today. He can enable people or, or leaders to abandon common sense and, and, and to pursue foolish things. And we're like, what in the world are you doing, Lord? Why don't you give this leader some common sense? Why don't you give them some self-control? Why don't you give them some dignity or some humility or, or care for others or, or whatever it is? And we, we kind of wonder, but again, we have to remember from scripture that God is sovereign over all of that. And he has a plan and a purpose. And that just like the Israelites were taught they could trust in God, we too are taught we can trust in God, even when we see people around uh, kind of charging right at us, throwing common sense out the window and going head forward with all of their resources. We can still trust that the Lord is sovereign and he is on our side. Um, let's look at now at verses 19 through 20. And there's three points I want to make uh, in, in concluding today's message. There's three main points. And the first one comes here in verses 19 through 20. And that first point is this. The Lord is our guard as well as our guide. The Lord is our guard as well as our guide. Look at verses 19 through 20. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So what we see here is that the pillar originally, and again, the, the angel and the Lord and pillar, I, from the language, uh, even more so in the Hebrew, I don't think these are two separate things. The, the angel of the Lord is either, it, it is the, the pillar of cloud or he's in the pillar of cloud. That, that's, that's the idea. So it's not two different things. You'll notice they're doing exactly the same thing. The angel was in front, they moved behind, the cloud happened to be in front and moved behind. So I, I think it's the same thing. But here's, here's the point. What God was originally doing, the angel of God was originally doing in that pillar of cloud is he was guiding his people. God is being a guide to his people. He's showing his people where to go. And we know that in Proverbs 16, 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Remember that God is our guide. 
Sometimes God can give us a, a special word, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit can speak these things. This is a part of the, the gifts, the charismata, the spiritual gifts of the New Testament that belong to the people of God. God can give a special word, a special word of knowledge. He can tell us something that we didn't know otherwise, that we couldn't know otherwise. He can give us a word of wisdom. That is a word to know what to do when you don't know what to do. But God's guidance can also simply be what we've called providence. This idea that, look, I'm just going to, man's heart's planning his ways. I'm just doing the best I can, Lord. I have no idea if this is the best thing to do. I, I, I just know it's the only thing to do. Or, or maybe I've got three choices. This seems like the best one. I'm going to do it. I prayed. I didn't hear anything necessarily from you, so I'm, I'm just going to do it. We can trust God providentially to be our guide. Just as the pillar of cloud was guiding Israel, so the Lord wants to be a guide to his people today. But as we saw here in this passage, the Lord is not only our guide, he is our guard. Psalm 61, 1-3 says this, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you whenever my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a tower of strength against the enemy. You see that the Lord is not just guiding Israel, but says, but hey, if you get attacked, you're on your own. I know sometimes we feel like that. You know, sometimes we feel like, oh, God's not guiding me, but, but he is and he wants to. He wants to guide you. But then sometimes we feel like, okay, maybe God's guiding, but he's not protecting me. He's just letting me get beat up or he's letting me be attacked. No, the answer is that the Lord is our guard as well as our guide. He wants to be our tower. He wants to be our fortress. He wants to be our refuge. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to come to him more than we want to go to him. I, I think that's one of the main things we just don't realize so often in life. Many times we're, we're, we're doubting, like, where is God and what is he doing? But the, but the truth is God's saying, come to me. Come to me. I want you to come to me. I'm not standing afar off and being like, whatever, I don't care. No, I want you to. Your problem is you're reluctant to come to me. You, you want someone else to guard you, don't you? You, you want your, your husband or wife to guard you. You want your sons or daughters to guard you. You want the government to guard you. You want your, your skills and your, the, and your reputation to guard you. you. You go to all these things to be your guard. But I want you to come to me. And sometimes God's people won't go to God as their guard until their other guards are gone. That's many times the way that it is. Many times people will not cry out to the Lord as their guard until all the other fortresses they've so trusted in have been brought to the ground. I believe that's one of the things God has been doing throughout this whole thing. Think about all the things that, that we, we trust in, that we were trusting in to just be there, you know, to just trust meeting, you know, physically in a church was just a given and that you, you don't have to worry about that. And we've seen that's not always the case. Um, the economy, sure, you know, it could always fluctuate and you have recessions and stuff, but I never saw this coming. I mean, who in the world, nobody, you know, just saw this coming. How, how in the world could you possibly 
prepare for that. And then, you know, just the maybe the way your family is handling it or or maybe you're responsible for leading somebody, uh, whether you're the head of a household or a business or whatever it is. And and people, you know, we're looking to you to be their guard and you realize I I'm I'm not able to do it. I, I want to be that. I want to be a guard for you. But, you know, things have been getting past me. I haven't been able to shield you from all those things. As bad as that experience is, and I wouldn't wish it on any of you, and yet at the same time, I know that in my own life, God has used it to draw me closer to himself than I would ever be had I had other fortresses still left standing. The Lord is our guard as well as our guide. Just as much as we trust him to lead us through life, we need to trust him that he'll guard us, that he does care about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about your family. He hasn't forgotten about your business. He hasn't forgotten about your ministry. He hasn't forgotten about how you feel, your, your anxieties and your troubles and your fears and your doubts. And by the way, even your anger, any anger and resentment at, at people that, that we think are making the problem worse, he hasn't forgot. And so I just believe you and I today, are being called to look to the Lord, not only as our guide, but our guard. Let's look at verses 21 through 22. And the point I want to make here is that the walls won't fall until God's time. The walls won't fall until God's time. Verse 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, it might be easy to assume that this was an obvious step for Israel to take. We might think, well, sure, God parted the sea. And the sea, you know, don't know how, how big or how tall it was, um, but but he parted the sea and it's it's being held kind of up like this. Goodness knows what that would have looked like. And oh yeah, obviously, you, you just go through it. I don't think that's all that obvious. I, I think, you know, maybe it's one of those things where, hey, uh, it, it doesn't look very stable and, and certainly unnatural and a little scary, but then again, going, you know, turning around or staying still is going to get us killed too. So, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll go through the sea. I, I don't think this is an easy or obvious step necessarily for Israel to take. What, I, what I'm suggesting is I, I think faith is involved. I think faith is involved. So the word wall here is the word that denotes the walls of a city. So it's not a word that, that denotes a, a little wall. These are you know grand walls. These are powerful walls, like these giant barriers, like the walls of a, of a walled city or something. So imagine Israel is passing through, and apparently this was a long journey. Now, um, I don't know if any of you have taken the channel from uh, England uh, to France. I haven't done that yet. Uh, I was over there one time um, and a, a group of friends, they were going to uh, leave our group and take the channel over to Paris for the day. And I'd never been to Paris and I wanted to go. I ended up saying no because I would have had to 
neglect my responsibility to to this group that I was helping to oversee. And I'm like, you know, guys, I, I can't I love to, but I can't do it. Can't do it. Um, so I didn't have to think about the idea of going in a train underneath the English Channel. Apparently, you're not under that long. Uh, it'd be fun to hear from any of you that have done it, what your experience was. But I was just thinking about it later. The idea of getting in a train and going underneath the sea. I mean, what happens if the supporting structure begins to fail? I mean, there, there's nowhere to go. You're under the sea. And I was thinking about that when I read this passage. There's these grand walls. And again, this this wind, this, I mean, and this is this is a supernatural wind. This is not just normal wind. If it, if it was normal wind, let, let's just say it was the most, you know, this crazy extreme wind, you would expect the water to have all been swept one way. That's not what happened here. It says walls were created on the left and the right. So these monstrous walls. And remember, this, this could have been miles. It could have been miles long uh, that Israel had to cross. And again, two million people going through this whole thing. I mean, imagine you're walking in. The water is being held up like walls. It shouldn't be. And you've got to be thinking that any moment the walls can fall down. At any moment, the walls could just come falling down. And so Israel is facing that. They have to face it before they go in. But even more so, while they're moving in deeper and deeper, as they keep going, the more they're going in, the, the more in trouble they are. If God is not able to keep the walls up for his people, the more they're trusting. It's like, man, the deeper I'm getting. I think it's that, that way for us as Christians. The more we trust in the Lord, the more we give our lives to the Lord, the, the more we serve the Lord, we, we do all this. Uh, I remember making that kind of fork in the road decision personally. I thought of getting a business degree and I was going to do this and that. That way I could always, you know, go over here and do this and felt like the Lord said, you need to burn burn the ox cart, burn the plow, put all of your training and, and your education and your time in, into the ministry. Put put everything in it. And I remember doing that like, gosh, Lord, if I'm wrong about this, that you've gone, I mean, that I'll be in the middle of a sea with walls and, and it'll come crashing down. I think the more we trust in the Lord, ironically, the more we can you know, really rethink the, the faith that we're trusting in the Lord. To just get started is one thing. Just raise your hand at an altar call, oh yeah, I'll follow you. That's one thing. But following Jesus, when all your friends leave you because you're a Christian, turn your back on you, when when your family leaves you, some some of you may have had a spouse that left you because you were a Christian. Or when your children go bad. Or when a spouse you know, leaves you, or uh, you you lose your job, or or your spouse is you know your a loved one is sick and dying, and they and they pass away, and you're more and more and more you're you're getting into the middle of the sea with the walls up, and you're beginning to ask yourself, can the Lord keep up the walls until I make it to the other side? Is the Lord able to do that? And I believe that the answer that the Bible gives us is yes. To the people of God, the walls will never fall until God's time. So I think as you and I even, we look out over what's going on in the United States, the, the, the culture wars, and I saw some scary looking videos yesterday of just 
various like uprisings and people people getting kind of crazy uh, in different parts of the country and then the, the whole political uh, turmoil and sphere and the, the economic markets and then just everybody's personal and individual situation and it's not like health issues and families just take a break because you're in an economic uh, disaster. No, you're still dealing with that kind of stuff. So I think it's as we're moving in don't necessarily think it's a strange thing that, that you rethink it. That's not necessarily a bad thing because I think when we're rethinking the faith that we're putting trust in God, it can actually make our faith deeper. More and more and more, we are investing our hearts in God. The more I give to God, the more I serve to God, more invested I am. I'm getting deeper into this thing. And I just want to reassure you, friends, that even when it looks like the walls are gonna come falling down on you, those walls will not fall until God's time is right. God is able to bring you and I. He's able to bring his people through to the other side, safely to the place he wants us to be. We have to trust in the Lord. Lastly, number three, we'll look at verses 23 through 31. And my point there is simply this. What God says is always fulfilled by what God does. What God says is always fulfilled by what God does. Let's look again at verses 23 through 31. The Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud. And he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and on their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So basically, I was able to lump that, that bigger section together um, because it literally, if you go back to what God said to Moses earlier, it's the fulfilling of literally everything he said. He said to Moses, you know, wave your hand. So we see Moses waves his hand with his staff. And then he says, Moses, then the water's going to part. And there'll be a wall on your left and on your right. There was a, water was parted. There was a wall on the left and on the right. And then you're going to go through on dry ground. And so they're, they're going through on dry ground. And then the Pharaoh's going to charge and they're going to charge. But he's going to overthrow them and he overthrows them. So literally everything in verses 23 through 31 is the fulfillment of what God said in the previous verses. And this, of course, is no isolated incident. This is at the heart of the Bible, this idea of the faithfulness of God in his word. We have to understand that about God's word. We, we know the Bible is God's word. 
but what do you believe about the fact that the Bible is God's word? How do you connect that in life? What difference practically does it make to say that the Bible is the word of God? One of the things I think we have to understand, what I believe we, we need to trust, is that what God says is always fulfilled by what God does. Unlike people in the world who say one thing and do another, that never happens with God. God never says one thing and does another. It is always, his word is always fulfilled by his actions. Now, as human beings, that's a trait I think we should try to emulate to the best of our ability. We're, we're going to fall short. We're going to make mistakes. There, there's times where we're sincere, like I, I want to fulfill this obligation. And then you are just unable to do it, like literally unable to do it. And I'm not God. I'm not sovereign. I can't make, you know, I signed a, a, a lease on this thing saying I would be able to pay it. I mean, if I lose my job and have nothing, I mean, I can give you the shirt off my back. That's literally all I can give. I'm so sorry. I gave you my word, but my actions are unable to fulfill it. And that's not necessarily an immoral act uh, on, on my part. I simply can't do it. Other times, of course, we know people say things and then they never intend on doing what they say. They're just saying it to accomplish something they want and they don't want the responsibility of fulfilling what they say. This is why a lot of people don't like politicians. And, and again, I don't think politics is an easy field to get into. I think it is very hard. When you start, the more you actually look at things, the more you look at policies and, and legislation, all that, it, it's, it can get very, very complicated. And I think many times, again, people are just, they have this simplistic idea of what they want to do, but then the reality of it is, is extremely complicated. So... I think in life, we get so used to the fact that what people say is often not what they do, that we bring that with us. That's our experience. You could say that's kind of our world our worldview. When somebody comes to the Bible, perhaps for the first time, maybe you're, you're middle-aged, you're 40, 50, 60 years old, and you weren't raised in a Christian home, and you, you don't know the Bible, um, but you do know this, you learn this in life. Many times what people say is not what they do. And so you, you learn that about life. And, and that's actually a valuable bit of knowledge, isn't it? If you're going to get into business deals with people, if you're going to you know make personal agreement, you probably want to know that people, you don't want to be naive. Oh, well, he said it. You know, I don't need a contract, right? You, you want to be aware that people do not always do what they say. But one of the problems is when we come to the Bible, we can sort of put that into our relationship with God. When God says that he wants to guide you, when God says that he wants to guard you, when God says, I will not let the walls fall until it is my time to allow them to fall, when God says that, sometimes we know the Bible says it, but we don't trust it with our, with our hearts. And that is a problem that needs to be corrected. We need to be able to come to the Bible and remember God's word is always fulfilled by, by what he does. And that is something to rejoice over. If there's any promises of God, if there's any truths of God in the scriptures, we can know he's going to fulfill it. Two of the great truths of scripture in my mind are the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that God promised in the garden. God said, 
God said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's what he said. Took thousands of years of human history, but one day when Jesus of Nazareth appeared, he lived a sinless and perfect life where we have sinned and gone wrong. He dies the death on the cross, bearing the curse of the law, which we ourselves deserve to bear. And he defeats the power of death itself by rising again from the dead. Jesus is the one who fulfills the word of God in himself. That's why Jesus is called the word of God. Think about that. In the beginning of John, the, the logos, the word, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's what the gospel of John says. What God says is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the living embodiment of God in action. You see Jesus, you see God. That is exactly what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we see Jesus parting the Red Sea of sin and death. When you look at sin, it's impossible for us to defeat. I am a sinner. It's impossible for me not to sin. I can maybe not sin in this way or that way, but to sin, oh, I am certainly going to do that. It, it is hopeless. It's a sea for me. I cannot get through. And death, what about that? What if I watch my health and I stop eating food and I just drink green drinks all, all day long and I, and I always run and I never go in the sun and all that? Am I going to escape death? No, I will. Death is also a sea that I cannot get through. But Jesus is the one who has parted the seas of both sin and death. And he has made a way for you and I today. There is a way past the sin that bars us from a relationship with God. There is a way past death. There is life after life after death that Jesus has broken through death and come out on the other side. There is a way for the people of God. And so I believe that God is doing that. And of course, reading the book of Revelation, you come to the end. And what Revelation sums up is that all of human history will be guided by God to the very end. And since we already know what God says is what God does, God said he would send the seed of the woman. He did send the seed of the woman, Jesus. And we can know that the end of Revelation will be true. We will be resurrected. We will be reunited together with God and his people, world without end. And that is the blessed hope for you and I today. So whatever you're facing, I just want to tell you that God can make a way through the sea. Whether it's relationships, your health, this whole situation, the, the anxiety, the confusion, what we need to do as responsible Christians and citizens of, of the United States. We, we need to vote and make sure our vote is transformed by the gospel and it's biblical as much as we can possibly figure it out to be and, and stand together in unity and love and, and work together for the glory of the name of Jesus. As we do that, even if we encounter what looks like a sea, we can know that in Christ, there is always a way through the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we thank you so much that through your son, Jesus, you have opened up for us a new and living way through the seas of sin and death. Lord, I just 
pray for anyone this morning that might not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they feel that their guilt, their shame is an impossible sea that can never be crossed. I just pray, Lord, that they would understand, that they would know, that they would believe with all of their heart that Jesus has paid the price for everything they have ever done, including even the things that have been done against us. You have bought up all the debt, all the sin of the world upon yourself, and therefore you are parting the sea, and you are allowing us to pass through from death unto life. We can go from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive with Christ seated in the heavenly places. So Lord, I just pray for anyone that might not know you today, Lord, held down, by shame and guilt. We just pray you would set them free. Lord, for any of us that are scared by death, Lord, maybe there's a genuine fear of death. It's it's fear of the virus. It's fear of uh, uh, just the social upheaval uh, that is going on, uh, the advancement of age or, or a diagnosis from a doctor, whatever it is, Lord, if, if there is overwhelming fear for anyone about their mortality, Lord, I pray you would show them that the sea is being opened up that the end of their story is not death, but life. We will live again. We will be raised up in a body like these, but unlike these, transformed in the glory of God, that we will never again know sin or death, and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. So Lord, we just pray, if there is any of that in your people, you would part the sea and invite them forward today. Lord, I just pray for a blessing over all of us, Lord. I do believe, again, this is such a historic moment we find ourselves in. We did not ask for it, but we have been placed here by your sovereign will. And so it is my prayer that we would be seen to be faithful witnesses. If, Lord, if you don't return before our time ends, I pray that future generations of Christians would be able to look back at how we live this moment, our children, our grandchildren, and they would be able to see that we were faithful witnesses to Jesus. We were not carried away with the current of fear and of the crowd, but rather we stayed the narrow and difficult path that leads to life. Lord, I just pray you would sustain and provide for your people, renew them, give them hope, give them joy, and give them opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with someone this week. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.